Welcome to the 198th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are a brief overview of Patrick's weekend predictions, our weekly look at the NBA, and a review of the second week of NCAA basketball tournament action. Let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. We will start in the NBA, where Patrick went a perfect 4-0 with his NBA predictions. And similarly, in NCAA basketball predictions, Patrick went 4-0. So if you can do the math, he went a pad perfect 8-0 combined in these this past weekend's predictions. Uh, Patrick, that brings you to an overall record of 693-441, and which is a 61.1 winning percentage. What do you think about this week's predictions? Well, um, last week I went four and four, and I thought that was okay considering I paid. Well, I, I it's funny because I paid no attention to the NBA, but I still went three and one in that, and then went one and three in college basketball. Um, this week, I predicted Elite Eight games and, uh, or sorry, Sweet Sixteen games, I should say, to get to teams getting to the Elite Eight. And uh, ironically enough, if you actually looked at what we said on the podcast, I think I did have the same. I didn't actually check or not, but. I think I had the same predictions that I said on the podcast last week as I did my weekend predictions. But funny enough, the teams that were supposed to be in the less close games, i.e. both Alabama and Houston, who were the one seeds, and then also Tennessee, who I just chose not to pick because I think they had the same spread as the UConn game, and that was probably a more hyped-up game. Um, But the teams who were favored by more, and as a result, the teams that I didn't end up picking the games of actually, I would have gotten wrong, which is pretty funny because most of the time, you know, you pick the close games, you get some of the close games wrong, and you go, ah, I wish I had taken the easy route and I picked, I don't know, Alabama over the Citadel in football or whatever it is. But this week actually was the exact opposite. Um, as the close games, I was able to get right, but the not close games were supposedly the games that weren't supposed to be close on paper uh, were the ones that I actually got wrong, which is kind of interesting. Um, But anyway, uh, I won't talk about the college ones because we're going to go over that in a bit. But as you said, uh, 4-0 in those Sweet 16 predictions. In the NBA, I decided to stop trying to reverse jinx the Kings and realize that I I think they just win regardless of what I pick. So I picked them, and lo and behold, they won anyway. Um, So I'm not worried about the reverse jinx anymore. Um, That was a good win for me, the Kings beating the Suns there. Uh, then you had the Warriors who beat the 76ers 120 to 112. This is a very entertaining game. Really came down to the last minute in terms of fourth quarter scoring. Uh, it was very important for both of those teams, and the Warriors were able to come out with the win. Sixers, this game was important for seeding, kind of. And then the Warriors, very important for seeding, and also the fact that they could have missed the playoffs outright. Or, and I mean, frankly, they still can, but um, much less likely now that they pulled out that close win there. Uh, then the Lakers beat the Thunder 116-111. to 111. Very similar story to the Warriors-Sixers game, except for both the Lakers and the Thunder in a similar position to the Warriors in terms of seeding and the importance of their games going uh, from here on out. Also important for setting up the tiebreaker. I believe that gave the Lakers the, th- the tiebreaker over the Thunder uh, over the course of the season. I'm pretty sure I saw that somewhere. Um, and then the Nuggets beat the Bucks 129-106. to 106. This game not important at all for seeding for either of those teams. Uh, pretty comfortably in the one seed for both of them. However, for the Nuggets, it's a message that's being sent there because I believe they've been under the Bucks, uh, the Celtics, and the 76ers for maybe a month or so now in terms of odds to win the championship, which is very interesting. The top three in the East are higher than even the one seed in the West. 
And recently, the Suns, I think, overtook the overtook the Nuggets as the favorite to win the West. So the Nuggets have been getting some disrespect, especially from, I guess that's technically, you could say that's odd maker, odds makers, but really that's mostly bettors who clearly weren't betting the Nuggets enough and they decrease their odds as such and let the Suns' odds go higher as they get Kevin Durant back soon. Um, but the fact of the matter is, the Nuggets were getting a lot of disrespect for various reasons, um, and this was a good statement victory for them, one that was much needed and one that uh, Nuggets fans should be very, very happy about. All right, well, Patrick's predictions, as always, for next weekend will be posted on our website, 4th24.com. On Thursday, let's move over to NBA action with our weekly recap of the NBA and always starting with Patrick's three most impressive teams of the past week. I will start with my most impressive team of the week, which for this week is going to be the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, They clinched a playoff spot as well as a division title this week uh, and got John Morant back. Um, They they are looking very, very good as we near the end of the season here, uh, winning six in a row and going nine and one in their last ten, starting to create some distance between them and Sacramento, who is now two games back of the two seed in the West. Don't really think that's going to matter too much. If anything, I mean, you might see a situation like a few years ago where certain teams are resting players to try to get an easier matchup on the final day of the season um, or, or the more preferred matchup in the playoffs. But with the way this works with the play-in bracket, the two seed, first of all, you don't know who you're going to play because it's just whoever comes out of that first play-in game. Um, and it's not like there's an option here to just jump up to the one seed by winning more games. I think Denver's pretty close to locking that up. Um, but the reality is if Memphis were to slip down to the three seed right now, they would be playing golden state, but if golden state were say to lose their next game and then Minnesota wins their next game, then all of a sudden you'd much rather play the Timberwolves than play the Warriors out of the play in bracket. So there really isn't going to be in my, in, in my estimation, there's not going to be any craziness with the last day of the season where teams are effectively tanking for a day to get an easier matchup. I don't think that's going to happen just because of the fact that teams six through 10 are separated by a game and a half. So you have no idea who's going to be there. Um, And then also you don't know who's going to make it out of the play in bracket. So it's best probably just to win um, and assume that the team who is the best is going to play their way into that six seed. uh, And the team who's the worst out of, or not even just the worst, but the next best teams will either a miss the play in entirely B make the play in and lose in the play in or C they'll actually go through and win the play in bracket but you can't really deal with that in terms of who the opponent's going to be. You can't say, oh, we want to be the three seed instead so that we don't have to have the potential of playing the Lakers if they stay in the play-in bracket and if they end up making it out of the play-in bracket. You just can't control any of that. Uh, but speaking of the play-in bracket, the Pelicans uh, went 3-0 this week. They beat the they beat the Clippers, the Hornets, and San Antonio. They are one of the teams who needed good results throughout the week based on where they are in the Western Conference standings. They started the week on the outside looking in, uh, and they were able to make it all the way to the sole possession of the eight seed with only seven games remaining. Uh, that is very good for the Pelicans, getting a win over a team like the Clippers as well in the progress in, in in the process. Excuse me, um, is also a good thing. Teams four through ten, I should mention, are actually separated by two and a half games, uh, but you know there's even less separation between six and ten. But that all of that is important when you consider a team like the Pelicans who have a chance to climb even higher by the end of the season. Um, and they have had some injury issues, but they've now won four in a row. They're six and four in their last 10. Uh, and they're looking really good at the right time of the season, getting over those injury issues and some of those struggles. 
and they will be in a seeding battle with pretty much everybody else in the West, uh, as we've come to discuss over the last few weeks. Uh, and as has and well, I mean, really, the way it's been like this for pretty much the entire season, that outside of Denver and for most of the season, Memphis, no one has really touched that group of teams. Uh, and I guess Phoenix was up there at some point before they started dealing with more injury issues. But really, that whole just group of teams has not found much separation all year. And it makes sense that by the end of the year, we're still having pretty much no separation whatsoever. And it's still um, a really interesting conversation in terms of who's going to make it and where they're going to be seated. And then finally, moving to the Eastern Conference, the Cavaliers went 3-0 this week. They beat Houston and they beat Brooklyn twice. They were playing well at the perfect time. They've won six of their last seven, and they're attempting to potentially steal the three seed away from Philly, who is currently two games ahead of them, but had kind of a rough week, um, and Cleveland is five and a half games clear of the Knicks, so probably not going to fall into not hosting at least the first playoff series. Um, it's also an interesting discussion, the fact that the Cleveland Cavaliers have clinched a playoff spot, which is um, something that they should be very proud of, and I mean... Very predictable considering the improvements they made by getting Donovan Mitchell in the offseason. But at the same time, you give up some assets in a trade. You don't know exactly how much better you're going to get. Um, the team that we're about to talk about next had the exact opposite effect from a trade. So we'll get there in a second. But the fact of the matter is you have you just don't know how things are going to work out, especially with the fact that a lot of these blockbuster trades are one player for a bunch of players. And when that one player gets injured, let's just throw out there, you know, it would be a lot better if you still had those three players and whoever you would have picked with those draft picks that you had, rather than have that one player who's currently injured and can't play. That's the situation of the Mavericks. Donovan Mitchell has been very healthy all year uh, for the Cavs, which has allowed them to have such a great season uh, and clinch this playoff spot so early. All right, well, you hinted at it, so let's just move to our most disappointing teams of the past week. Number one. Yeah, that's the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, this trade has not been looking very good at all. Um, the Mavericks are 3-8 and eight with Luka and Kyrie both in the lineup. This week, they lost twice to Charlotte. Uh, they lost to Golden State, and they lost to Memphis as well. You can excuse the Golden State and Memphis losses as they are also fighting for playoff spots, but losing twice to the Hornets when you're right in the thick of things in terms of a playoff spot is, is just bad. I mean, there's also the controversy around the Warriors game and Mark Cuban protesting that game, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff that was... That, that went into that, obviously, is a different conversation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you have to take care of your business and beat Charlotte uh, at least one game. Uh, I don't know what their injury status was for the first game, but I do know that the second game, both Luka and Kyrie was playing, or were playing. It's just not, it, it's not excusable. You can't lose games like this when you're in the middle of a playoff chase, especially when you're really on the wrong side of things for now. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'll talk more about the standings in a second, but the fact of the matter is they are the first team out of the playoffs as it stands right now, 14 and a half games back of first, like everybody is more than is double digits out, but that the magic number to be in fourth right now is 11 games back. They're at 14 and a half. They are not part of that really tightly clumped up group. That's between 11 and 13 and a half games back. They are one game back of that group that includes Oklahoma city, the Lakers, new Orleans, Minnesota, golden state, uh, and then also, if you want to throw in, throw them in at the very, very top, you also have Phoenix uh, and the Clippers. But right now, they went from being in that four or five range, and really a long time ago, all the way up in the three or four range, all the way to out uh, on the wrong end of things. And we'll just have to see if they're able to pull it together at the end of the season. But they need to figure things out fast because they don't have many games left. No teams 
uh, do. So it's pretty late in the season. Only seven games left for them. Uh, seven games left for most teams that are in the playoff chase as well. Um, for some teams, even six games left. So it, it, it's very, very late in the year, and the Mavericks don't really have any time to figure it out. But that means that they got to do it really, really, really quickly. Uh, and otherwise, they will have pulled off an extreme collapse to make it all the way from where they were in the Western Conference standings all the way to out of the playoffs uh, by the end of the season. And then you have the New York Knicks, not nearly in the same conversation in terms of missing the playoffs, but they're flirting a little bit with the play-in bracket, not something you want to see. The Knicks have been really hot and cold recently. I feel like they've been, I feel like we've talked about them every week um, in one respect or another. They had that long winning streak nine games in a row, but then I think the next week they didn't win a game. This week you have them uh, going 1-0-3 and oh and three after I believe they went 3-1 and one last week and were on our list. But this week they lost to Orlando, Miami, and Minnesota. Again, kind of the similar thing. They're just don't lose to Orlando. Although Orlando has won three in a row this week and actually almost made this list, but I decided to stick with playoff teams only. Uh, funny enough, Orlando is only one game out of being in the same exact position in the East as the Mavericks are in the West, which is crazy to say when you consider what's on the contents of those rosters. Although I will say there's a lot more separation between well, actually, in the East, there's more separation between te- between the 10th seed and the 11th seed than there is in the West between the 11th seed and the 4th seed. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot easier to be that, in that position in the East, but at the same time, still crazy to be saying that about both those teams. But the Knicks, safe of all those teams for now, but it is important because they are only two games ahead of Brooklyn and Miami, who are currently tied for the 6th seed and the first play-in spot. They really want to avoid that play-in bracket, as all teams should, um, and there are, there are only seven games left, but if they're going to continue to lose at this rate, there's a potential for Brooklyn or Miami to sneak up uh, on the Knicks and maybe take their spot away and knock the Knicks into the play-in bracket, which would also mean that they'd have to play either Milwaukee or Boston, most likely in the first round, and you do not want that matchup whatsoever. Um, and then finally, we have the 76ers. They went 1-3 and three in this week. Uh, they beat Chicago once. But they lost to Chicago, which marked their first loss against the Bulls since, I believe, the 2017-18 season, which is kind of a crazy stat, but it's been a while. Um, they also lost to Phoenix and Golden State this week, and that pretty much took them out of the two-seed conversation. Uh, they still have an outside chance at it, but they are two and a half games back of Boston for that right now. And if they can't get the two, they might be looking at a rematch with Jimmy Butler and the Heat, who are currently uh, in seventh, but might move up to six because they're tied for six with Brooklyn, and I, I really believe more in the Heat than I do in the Nets at this point. Um, and the Heat beat them in the conference semifinals last year, so it's an interesting note. It's also the Jimmy Butler revenge series, as always, uh, as he faces off with his former team if that were to happen again this year. Okay, who's your player of the week in the NBA? I gave it to Brandon Ingram. There were plenty of good individual performances this week, plenty of good players on good teams, but I gave it to Ingram for helping the Pelicans, who really, really need it right now. Uh, they He averaged 31.3 points, 6.3 rebounds, and 10 assists per game as the Pelicans try to work their way uh, back into the playoff picture. They have done so successfully now up to the 8th seed, but we will just have to see where they end up by the end of the season. All right, let's transition from the NBA and move to our weekly look at college basketball, which uh, starts with the NCAA Tournament Sweet 16. Let's start with number 7 seeded Michigan State against number 3 seeded Kansas State. Kansas State won this game 98-93 to in overtime. You had Michigan State. I had Kansas State. And I was happy uh, to be wrong. 
Yeah, I know that. But uh, look, this was a great game. Um, by far the best game of the tournament. Still not really close. Um, FAU and Tennessee actually were close. It was a good first game as well. Game um, but yeah, the first overtime game of the tournament. Still the only overtime game of the tournament. So it's hard to say when there's been one overtime game in the entire tournament that that game wasn't the best game. Um, there are there was another contender actually that we'll talk about in a few games that I'm thinking of now. Now that I now that I'm looking back at the results of the week. But at the same time, this game, I mean, this game was just insane, and also the high-scoring pace in it was something that, yes, we somewhat expected, but at the same time, it's still always great to see teams just scoring what felt like every every possession, pretty much. I mean, obviously, that's not the case, and if you look at shooting percentages, it's not like either team even shot 60% or anything like that. But, look, Marquise Noel set a record in the NCAA tournament with 19 assists in this game, had 20 points, accounted for 63% of Kansas State's points, uh, in this game, and he really came out and played an amazing game in his home city, um, and he showed out for for New York City point guards, uh, and then, you know, you, you heard Jay Wright talk about the fact that it always feels like the New York City point guards are dominating in the tournament, which is interesting because that's actually not what ended up happening for Kansas State, and there's some, um, that, I mean, well, that's, that's it. That just isn't what ended up happening, but... Um, Look, he put on a great tournament through this game and even in the next game that we'll talk about. Um, but Michigan State put up a great fight as well. It was a great game. Uh, nothing else to say about it. It was just a great game played by both teams. All right, well, let's move on to Florida Atlantic, seeded number nine versus number four, Tennessee. Well, this game was also up there in terms of one of the best games of the of the tournament. The only problem I had with it is just that Tennessee is really, really slow-paced. <laughs> Um, this was, this was a slow, slow, slow game, and it was very, very close all the way throughout. Tennessee had the lead for most of it. FAU kind of made a run in the middle of the game and then never looked back from there. Uh, but it's just, you know, Tennessee plays a little boring. I mean, we all know this. Um, we both picked Tennessee in this game, but look, they play a boring style. It is what it is. FAU was able to overcome it though, and overcome all that physicality, overcome the size that Tennessee has shoot threes over their defense, uh, and do just well enough that they were able to advance to the Elite Eight for the first time in program history with this victory. Um, but look, a great game played by FAU. Uh, a fun tournament, by the way, and this is this is one of the best stories there has been in this very fun tournament. Yep, uh, great story. Probably, as we talked about, a very underseated team. Um, but uh, let's move on to the next matchup, number eight, Arkansas. Versus maybe another underseeded team, number four, UConn? Yeah, I mean, you have, honestly, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and toot my own horn here. Two of the things that I was wrong about in terms of committee seating, actually three of the things I was wrong about in terms of committee seating, um, UConn, San Diego State, FAU. Maybe I wasn't the one who was wrong about where those teams should be seated. I had FAU as the number one eight seed, I think, or at least up there somewhere. Committee puts them as a nine seed, gives them the Memphis matchup. I complained about it the night the tournament happened. And now that we see FAU in the Final Four, and we consider that Memphis really got screwed out of that game against FAU, you just have to think, what if Memphis got what got Arkansas's path? And by the that's where I'm going to tie this back. But, you know, Memphis might have been able to make it all the way to this UConn game. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to make it at least to the Sweet 16 by beating Kansas, because I don't really see a reason why if Arkansas did it, why Memphis couldn't. I, I think they're both as talented. Um, and I just think that that, that, that underseeding was 
just bad. Um, and then when you go on the concept of Yukon, the only problem that I had was that I did want to see them over Xavier because of the fact that I just think that Yukon is a better team and their resume is better. But the problem was just that they ended up in a seed list as the number as the number one four seed right next to a team who swept them in the regular season. And that was their only that was the only reason why Xavier, I believe, was seeded ahead of UConn. So that one makes some sense, but at the same time, we've seen that UConn is frankly more than even a four seed. They are one of the best teams in the country, if not the best team in the country. Um, and we'll see that over the next over the course of next week. Um, I'm not going to spoil what I'm going to say later, but maybe I did a little bit. Uh, but UConn won this game 88-65, dominant fashion. Not much to talk about in terms of the game here. We both pick UConn and both pick them to go to the Final Four. Uh, that's exactly what happened. All right, let's turn our attention to maybe the game you were hinting about before as the best game of the tournament besides that Michigan State-Kansas State matchup. And that was number three Gonzaga versus number two UCLA. Yeah, I also was hinting at the FAU game, but it wasn't that. It wasn't the earlier FAU game. It was the next FAU game, which I kind of forgot about. Um, but look, Gonzaga and UCLA played a great game. Um, Mark Few, I don't want to use the word stole, but stole the play from <laughs> Jay Wright from the championship game where Chris Jenkins hit the shot to beat North Carolina in the national championship game. Uh, ran that play. Julian Strother hit the shot for Gonzaga, uh, and that is the shot that ended up advancing them. Uh, over UCLA. However, I would like to mention that UCLA led for most of this game um, pretty pretty handily. Gonzaga just could not take care of the ball. And then Gonzaga took the lead in the game, and it looked like they were going to cruise to a victory. And then they choked their lead over the final minute. I think UCLA at some point was on a 12-1 to run uh, to get to the point where they were either tied or down by two. And then Gonzaga hits this shot, and all of a sudden... You could argue whoever lost that game was going to end up with one of the biggest collapses that you could have in the tournament. UCLA with a double-digit halftime lead. Gonzaga, on the other hand, overcoming that halftime double-digit lead, having a double-digit lead at the end of the game, and then almost collapsing on that. So it's a very interesting conversation, but the fact of the matter is this was an amazing game. When both teams hold double-digit leads, one at the end of the first half, literally at the end of the first half, and the other right with a minute or two to go uh, in the second half, and then it somehow ends up being a game that comes down to literally a shot from about 35 feet out. You know you've seen a great college basketball game. That's exactly what Gonzaga and UCLA was. All right, let's move to another very, very entertaining game. Um, and that is number five, San Diego State, against number one, Alabama. Yeah, maybe these teams actually might have shot better from the field, maybe especially over UCLA, but a slower-paced game. San Diego State was able to dictate it a little bit. They went very, 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 very physical um, and as a result, they were able to really just, I mean, it's ironic because Alabama is a football school. They were able to out-physical the football school. Um, they've kind of bullied Alabama in this game. They were active on the offensive glass, both teams actually, for that matter. Um, some cold shooting to start the game with, but really you could tell that it was going to be one of those games that was going to be whoever grinded it out better and whoever was going to have the clutch shot making in the end was going to come out with the win because both teams had their leads None really too big on either side, but both teams had leads, lost the lead. There are a lot of lead changes, a lot of ties in this game. It went back and forth all the way until the end, uh, until San Diego State came back from down a few, down maybe eight or nine points, uh, and they went on a big run to take the lead, and they never really looked back from there, although Alabama did cut it to two at some point near the end of the game. Uh, but San Diego State able to come out with the win in that game. Right, after we move. had both, sorry, after we had both picked Alabama to both yep. win this game and go to the Final Four. Yeah, well, we were wrong, uh, as were a lot of people. 
number 15, Princeton, versus number 6, Creighton. Well, the one thing we were not wrong about was that the winner of the, of the Elite Eight matchup in this region came from that game. Uh, we didn't think it was going to be them. And, uh, and, well, after seeing what Creighton did against Princeton, we both actually thought Creighton's going to beat San Diego State and go there because, I, I mean... First of all, I will I will say I did have that in the Elite Eight. I'm actually very proud that I had five of the Elite Eight teams, um, and the two that I didn't have were Houston. I mean, Houston and Alabama being two that I didn't have. I don't really I don't really have a complaint about that one because I don't know what I'm supposed to do about the one seeds losing everywhere. Um, but look, Creighton won this game, 86 to 75. Princeton had some hot shooting in the first half, but once they started to cool down, and they were really playing at Creighton's pace all game, which is just going really fast. Um, Creighton was comfortable is the best way to describe this. They were playing at their pace. They were turning Princeton over a little bit, um, just enough to get a few opportunities in transition. They were running off of really defensive rebounds too, not even just turnovers. Uh, and they were able to get into a good offensive flow. Baylor Shireman was amazing in this game. And as a result, Creighton just had too much shot making for Princeton to be able to overcome. Uh, and that led to that Creighton victory. Yeah. Um, the game seemed to get less dramatic as the weekend wore on. Let's talk about... Dramatic in terms of how close they were. Let's talk about another game uh, that surprised both of us. Number five, Miami versus number one, Houston. Well, I had Houston going to the Final Four only because I'm stubborn and I had them at the beginning of the season as the number one team and I wouldn't give that up. Uh, Although I will say the one team, and I will say this, I do remember that maybe about November, December when UConn was 11-0, I did say that UConn was the one team that I might give up my status of Houston being number one for which is kind of ironic because by the end of the season, if I had picked UConn to go to the Final Four, or sorry, UConn to go to the championship game instead of Houston and pick them over them, then my bracket would look amazing right now. Uh, But unfortunately, Houston came up short in this game against Miami. Miami won 89-75, made 11 threes in this game. Uh, That was the difference in the game. Just literally three-point shooting, also points off of turnovers, I believe. Miami won both those games with, or, or sorry, won both those advantages by 12 points and... 11 points, I think, or 13 points, actually, in the points off of turnovers category, which is crazy to think in in terms of a game that ended up being a 14-point margin. It just goes to show you that there were two areas where Miami just had a big advantage over Houston, and they took around the same amount of threes, but Houston just could not get any to go in the second half. Um, and as a result, Miami was able to pull away. Um, Houston made a few runs to get it close, but as I said to you during the game, it was really similar to the Duke-Tennessee game in that one team had a lead that was in that 6-8 to eight point range where you know it's still possible to make a comeback, but the other team just could never get the game to one possession and really put the pressure on um, that team. In that game, it was Duke, who was never really got within four in the second half, and Tennessee, as a result, was able to close out the game. And in this game, Houston cut it to six, they cut it to four, they cut it back to six, to four again. They had it at two at one point, but I think Miami made a three after that or got a three-point play, something like that. And really, outside of that one possession where they had it at two, they never got it within within one possession. Um, And that was really the result that allowed Miami to be able to just kind of dominate this game because Houston could never make it close enough. They were just playing even when Houston needed to make a run. And then by the time they had stopped playing it even, Miami was the team who ended up making the big run in the second half, and that propelled them to a dominant victory uh, over Houston. All right, and in the last game of the Sweet 16, number three, Xavier against number two, Texas. Well, this was your final four pick, and it looked very likely that they were going to make it after they kind of dismantled Xavier. Xavier did make this game closer at the end on paper. It's actually 
very odd to me that Texas actually won this game by less than what Miami won their game by because Miami definitely did not dominate Houston as much. Um, but Texas basically got a double-digit lead, I think 24-12, to 12, something like that. And I don't really think there was any point that Xavier ever had a, a real chance of winning this game. Um, Texas just really outclassed Xavier. They match up pretty well against them. The only matchup that Xavier really had an advantage in was Jack Nungy being being taller than Texas's bigs, but at the same time, Texas's bigs are athletic. Uh, and Nungy also likes to pick and pop a lot and get out and shoot some threes, which works against some of the Big East bigs like Sonogo, like Kalkbrenner, but it does not work against Texas at all. Um, and even the advantage that they might have thought they had in the post didn't really turn out to be that big of an advantage. And where Texas did have the advantage is the guards, um, and guard play does win in March, and that continued to be true throughout this tournament in Texas able to get this win over Xavier um, and advance to the Elite Eight. All right, well, let's talk about the Elite Eight games, uh, starting with number four, UConn, against number three, Gonzaga. Well, if you want to talk about guard play winning a game, this was it. Um, Drew Timmy had some foul trouble. That kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of Gonzaga's chances at this game. Everything kind of went downhill after Timmy picked up his fourth foul um, with, I think, 14 or 15, something like that, minutes left in the second half. It actually might have been 18 minutes. Yeah, I think it was 18 minutes left. Um, He picked it up on a rebound where UConn was crashing the boards. He kind of got his elbow or his arm up, his forearm, whatever you want to call it, a little bit too high and hit a UConn player. And then in the end, they called it a foul as UConn was trying to go to the rebounds uh, or trying to get the rebound. UConn's rebounding in this game was definitely the key. Uh, it felt like every time they missed, they were able to get it back anyway, and it didn't really matter. Gonzaga tried to double Sonogo. He would just dump it off to Andre Jackson. He would dunk it. Uh, Andre Jackson would run around the court. He'd make a pass. Someone would make a three. If they didn't make the three, Sonogo would get a rebound. They'd do another. They'd shoot another three, and that one would go in. And Gonzaga really just didn't have any answers uh, on the defensive end. And then when you look at the fact that they only scored 54 points as they lost this game 82 to 54, just realized I never even said the score. Um... Gonzaga didn't get anything going offensively after Timmy was out of the game, and when you consider that, um, if they can't get offensive production, nobody's going to beat UConn. Uh, UConn is is great defensively, but they are really, really strong offensively, um, especially the way they've been playing recently, Uh, and UConn was just able to press that advantage too much, and Gonzaga was just not able to measure up to it, especially with Timmy in foul trouble, and their guards just not really able to measure up to Jordan Hawkins and his shooting. And also even Sonogo definitely won that battle individually um, with Drew Timmy, despite the fact that, yeah, foul trouble accounted for a lot of it. I really feel like when they were both on the floor, Sonogo still had the clear advantage there. Okay, well, let's talk about the other three games from the Elite Eight uh, that were much closer. Number nine, Florida Atlantic, against number three, Kansas State. Yeah, FAU finally was able to, well, I shouldn't say finally, but FAU was able to make the Final Four for the first time in program history. Um they were finally able to make the parody show through in this bracket. There, you know, there were still, yes, there were, yeah, they're fine. There were no one seeds in the Elite Eight. That was the first time I think that's ever happened, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there was still a chance that this Final Four was 2 3 3 5. In the end, it happened to be one game off of being the lowest possible seeds out of this out of this combination of teams instead of being, you know, or I guess actually, yeah, no, the lowest instead of being the highest. I mean, it ended up being the highest, but, um, UConn obviously advancing, getting an upset there and FAU by far the biggest upset of this round. I think you can say 
They have been playing well, obviously, to get to this point, and they are definitely an underseeded team. But I still don't think that anybody really had... I'm not going to say nobody gave them a shot, but I don't think there were that many people out there predicting FAU to beat Kansas State after what Kansas State had gone through, beating Michigan State in overtime, who had knocked out pretty much the favorite in this bracket. You could argue with, you know, Purdue not looking strong at the end of the year. You could argue Marquette was the favorite in this bracket. Um, But with Kansas State being able to sustain that game, I think everybody thought that they would come out, take care of business, beat FAU, but FAU just came out with another level of intensity. This is one of the games I was hinting at, actually, um, as being one of the better games. Very high-paced. I've not seen a team overcome so many turnovers to win a game, especially scoring 79 points when you turn the ball over 20-plus times is actually really, really hard to do. I would I would argue it's pretty much as close to... It's probably the equivalent of scoring 35-plus in a football game if you turn the ball over four or five times. Um, and look... Despite losing the, you know, it's very popular in, in, in football mostly, but despite losing the turnover margin by a significant amount, FAU was just able to come up with enough stops on the defensive end, barely, uh, and definitely enough offense to just barely get over the edge against Kansas State. I mean, Kansas State did have a shot to win it at the end of the game, not able to actually get the shot off, uh, but did have a chance with the ball as I was screaming for FAU to foul, even though they didn't do it. All right, let's move to the other side of the bracket. Number five, Miami against number two, Texas. Texas led for 17 and a half minutes of this game, while Miami only led for seven minutes of this game. But Miami led for the first two or three and the last four or five, and that's the only thing that matters. Um, look, it does not matter who who leads the game the most. It's just who ends up on top. Miami was down by a lot. Uh, they were shooting 62%, I believe, in the first half. or Yeah, 63% in the first half. But at the same time, that was all, those were all two-pointers. And Texas was able to exploit that despite shooting worse than Miami from the field. They shot 9 of 20 in the th- from 3 while my while Miami was only shooting 2 of 7 or 2 of 8 at the time. So the three-point advantage was definitely in favor of Texas. And then Miami just realized that if Texas wasn't going to give them the 3, they should just start, they should just continue to drive the ball and they really needed to lock in on the defensive end. And once they started getting stops, and kind of taking that advantage, that was when the game started to roll in Miami's favor. They got it in transition more. Um, they were able to get some offensive rebounds, and really they just started making more tough shots. Uh, Jordan Miller in this game was insane. I mean, 27 points on 7 of 7 shooting from the field, uh, I believe, and then also a perfect line from the free throw line as well. Only guy other than Leitner to ever do that uh, on 7 attempts from both the free throw line and the field. Just an insane game in or just an insane performance to have in a very good game um and in su- on such an important stage to do it uh Jordan Miller able to come through clutch when Isaiah Wong didn't necessarily have his best game Nigel Pack had a had a good game but not an amazing one like he did against Houston um and you know Wong as I said a little bit under his averages but Jordan Miller really really stepped up uh when the Hurricanes needed a, a third score to kind of step up and replace Wong's role in terms of being the leader uh, of this team in a very, 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 very big game. Uh, and congrats to Miami for making this Final Four. Uh, just a great run by by this team. And, you know, maybe the ACC wasn't so bad after all. I mean, it was. But, you know, maybe they'd make it look a little bit better. All right, let's move over to uh, the final game of the Elite Eight and the final entrant into the Final Four, which was the winner of number 5 San Diego State and number 6 Creighton. Yeah, San Diego State able to win this game 57-56. to 56. 
Not a game that anybody would like if they like watching the NBA because this game was incredibly slow-paced. That is what San Diego State does. Uh, if you thought they were able to slow down Alabama in terms of the pace, they definitely slowed down Creighton, who had just come off of playing a, a game that was being played at warp speed against against uh, Princeton in the round before. They, they just slowed everything down. I mean, Creighton was doing a great job executing at the beginning of this game, and they were able to adjust to the pace well. Um, and kind of just run their sets on offense and just go through everything. But it really felt like, honestly, to me, this game kind of felt like a football game in the sense that one team got away from the scripted plays and then it just kind of fell apart for them. And I think that's really what happened with Creighton. They just, they had a great flow to their offense at the beginning of the game. And then it kind of just didn't work out that way towards the middle part of the first half and also the middle to end part of the second half. And in the end, San Diego State was able to take advantage, barely win a low-scoring game, um, in terms of the foul controversy, because I, I guess I, I think everybody who talks about sports has to have an opinion on this, it wasn't. It was a foul. I mean, the fact of the matter is that is a foul. Um, it's a foul seven days of the week and occasionally twice on Sundays. However, the one argument that I will give is that in that game, that was not a foul throughout the game. That was a foul maybe 50% of the time in that game, depending on what ref saw it. I mean, that game was incredibly physical, and it really felt like a toss-up in terms of unless you actually, you know, like hit someone in the head, it felt like it'd be a 50-50 in terms of if the foul would be called or not. So in terms of that being called in the context of that game's officiating and also in the context of the fact that there was one and a half seconds left, I can see why people are upset about it, especially if you're a Creighton fan. But in terms of the actual rulebook, that was definitely a foul. Um, in the context of that game, not a big fan of the call because they did call it super, super physical, but at the same time, I'm not going to say that it was a bad call because it was definitely the right call. Yeah, it was a foul. Um, all right. Well, that moves us to the final four and, uh, let's do our predictions here. Starting with number four, sorry, number nine, Florida Atlantic versus number five, San Diego state. Well, I'm almost tempted to change my pick here and go with FAU because we both have the same pick, uh, but I'm going with San Diego state. Uh, I just believe that, you know, maybe maybe this is retribution for the fact that they missed the turn that the tournament didn't happen in 2020. And by the way, look, we were robbed of a great tournament because Dayton and San Diego State were the top two seeds in that tournament, <laughs> which is just crazy. And I think Gonzaga as well was up there too. So there would have been three mid majors, although Gonzaga doesn't really count anymore. Uh, but it would have been an amazing tournament that we would have had in 2020. Um, unfortunately, not able to have that one for obvious reasons. But I think there is something that, you know, people are looking at FAU as the storybook Cinderella team, but maybe San Diego State is arguably a better story because of the fact that that program was robbed of that tournament. And by the way, a lot of the players on this roster were robbed of that tournament because they might not have been playing significant minutes back then because this team is really, really experienced every year. But the seniors on that roster were, the seniors on this roster were on that team. Um, and they didn't get to experience that after they had such an amazing season so maybe this is kind of their run that, you know, it becomes a great story. Maybe when we talk to, maybe if San Diego State is able to win this title, if you talk to their players in the future, they will say that that might be part of the motivating factor in the same way that Miami uh, getting all the way to the Elite Eight last year, but then really ending it pretty early in that game against Kansas because they did not get very close in that. That was their motivating factor this year to get back there. And instead of falling so far short on that platform, come back and win it on that platform. Maybe that's what San Diego State is going for in the fact that they had such a great team that didn't even get the chance. It's time to do right by those guys. 
All right. Well, as you said, we both picked San Diego State in that one. And then let's move to the other matchup, number five, Miami versus number four, UConn. Well, I only put a few teams in the category of one of the top teams in the country all year long. Um, Really, I say a few. I mean three. It was Alabama, Houston, or UConn for me at any different point in the year. Most of the time, Houston, pretty much 75% of the year. The only time it was not Houston was a brief period of UConn winning a few games when they were 14-0, and also when Alabama beat Houston, I gave it back to Alabama. But the fact of the matter is, I've been high on this UConn team all year. Um, I'm not going to say that I would have predicted them to be in the national title, but I did predict them to be in the Final Four at the very beginning of this tournament. Not in any cheesy upset bracket, not in some Big East favoritism bracket. In my actual bracket, I did put UConn in the Final Four. Uh, we talked about it on the podcast. I talked about them as a team. We didn't do we, we did do five seeds or lower, not four seeds or lower. But I did talk about them as a team that had championship potential. Um, and I really still believe that is true. They are up to number one in Ken Palm, so they would not break that streak whatsoever. They are extremely high-rated um, on Ken Palm. Number three in offense, number 11 in defense. Wouldn't break that streak whatsoever. Uh, and look, this team is just really good. I don't see any team stopping them the way they're playing right now. Yeah, uh, I think they win this game, and you may have hinted, so we both have predicted UConn against San Diego State in the national championship game. Uh, you just said you weren't going to predict anybody to beat them. What do you think of the national championship game? I definitely have UConn over San Diego State. I'm not saying that either of these games won't be close, but I just don't see how... I just don't see how you can pick a team over them with the way they've been playing. I mean, I definitely... I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if they lost the game or if they lost at any point because no loss in March is surprising at all. But the way they're playing right now is just... You cannot pick against them just the way they've been playing. I mean, it's that simple to me. Um, and I will say, they, they're very reminiscent of that Villanova team that went through the tournament, beat Michigan in the national championship game that did not win a game by less than, I think, 12. They beat every single opponent through the Final Four and through the championship game. If UConn wins each game by 15 or more, they will have beaten half the teams they played by 15 and half of them by 23 or more, which is insane. Um, is there a chance that they beat both of these teams by 20? Honestly, yes, there is a chance. Would I like to see that happen? No, I want to see the games be close. Uh, but look, we'll see what happens with UConn. Um, I will say that San Diego State and Florida Atlantic are also still both very highly rated by uh, metrics. And interestingly enough, the the one little tidbit that I will throw in here is that if you're relying on that Ken Palm top 20 in offense, top 20 in defense stat, FAU is 24th in offense and 29th in defense. San Diego State and Miami are very unbalanced in terms of... Uh, Miami's a very offensive team. San Diego State's a very defensive team. I think it's pretty obvious when you watch them. Um, but if FAU was able to come out, beat San Diego State, hold them to... Very low points. Same thing with UConn or whoever they face in the national championship game because they're going to be playing a top five offense. There's actually a chance that a nine seed, despite being that low before the season, might still fit this script of the top 20 in Ken Palm and offense and defense, which is insane because you would assume that anybody making this much of a Cinderella run has no chance of reaching those metrics. But at the same time, that's the reason why FAU was underseeded because they had a net in Ken Palm higher than half the four seeds, half the five seeds. Uh, they're just underseeded, but I would love to see them win. They are a Cinderella story. Um, but the fact of the matter is, all these teams are seeded fourth and lower. None of them are none of them are un-Cinderella teams. Maybe UConn, not really a true Cinderella whatsoever. But any of those teams would be fun to win the national championship. Um, obviously, everybody, I think, should be rooting for a first-time champion rather than a team that um, has won it so many times, and especially recently. 
But it'll also be interesting if UConn is able to win this. Where do they go in the conversation of the Blue Bloods? Do they join that group? Because when you put up five national titles, you have to be somewhere amongst that group. And this might be the year that finally gives them a lot of more national respect than what they've gotten in terms of their program history. Yeah, and then you consider men's and women's together, and wow, Blue Blood last basketball program. Although uh, they, 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 there is no doubt about it that they are by far the best combined men's and women's team because Tennessee is the only team that can measure up to them in the women's game, and their men's program is not measure. successful at all. All right, well, I think <laughs> UConn over San Diego State, but you know what? I will be if I'd be happy to be wrong if that were the matchup. And I think everybody would be happy to be wrong about any of these matchups. No, I think I, everybody's I, happy I, with I, anything, I, honestly. I in particular, I'd, I'd like to see Brian Dutcher win a national championship. He's uh, with my. Knew him when I was at Michigan, and he's been a longtime loyal assistant. He could have taken to Steve Fisher. He could have taken other head coaching jobs, and nice for him to sit there and wait to get his turn now. Uh, but that's the end of my sentimental rant here. It's also the end of this edition of the Fourth and Twenty Four podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which we are temporarily moving back to Tuesdays, starting next Tuesday, April Fourth, where we will recap Patrick's weekend predictions, have our weekly look at the NBA, and look back at the NCAA Final Four and national championship game. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, which includes his picks for next weekend's games that, as we mentioned before, will be posted, as always, on Thursdays on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number for T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.